Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week I interview Adam Barmby from EVE, the electric cargo bike manufacturer based in the UK, who Amazon used as the example bike when they announced their new micromobility hub for urban logistics in the UK recently. This was a really cool interview. I feel like I haven't really talked about micromobility for freight enough, and it was really exciting to unpack the implications for micromobility and see how it conforms to the thesis that Horace and I have been talking about here for the last couple of years. I was especially excited to hear that it's changing the business model of last mile delivery, where interestingly, more than half of the cost of delivery is incurred in the last mile. Sounds like a log normal distribution to me. As we mentioned, Adam was part of the Micromobility Accelerate pitch contest that we did in Amsterdam in June, and we have another conference coming up in San Francisco on the 15th and 16th of September 2022. We have over a thousand guests from hundreds of companies talking about the future of micromobility and how it can simultaneously help us with climate change while disrupting the urban transport economics of cities. And as we all know, as goes transport, so goes our cities. We would love to have you there. And so if you're interested, please go and get your tickets at micromobility.io. If you sign up right now, they are on substantial discount, but not for much longer. So get your tickets and we'll see you there. And now... Here is Adam. Let's go. Welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today Adam Bambi from Eve. How are you going today, Adam? Very good, thank you. Thanks for having us on. Not at all. Hey, look, it's a total pleasure and really, really exciting to be able to have this conversation. We just had you up on stage as part of the Micromobility Accelerate uh, pitch competition in Amsterdam. And to be honest, I hadn't known a huge amount about micromobility for like cargo delivery until I got to Europe. And it is everywhere and you guys are crushing it. And so I was really looking forward to yeah, the chance to just unpack that a little bit with you. But look, I, I figure the best place for us to start is like, how on earth did you get into this? Like, what what were you doing beforehand that kind of makes you go, yeah, I want to go and build four-wheeler e-mobility bike, you know, like electric cargo bikes? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 a, great, it's a great sort of start to it because, you know, I've, I've, I've got three young kids. I'm very, very conscious of the world that they're growing up in. And my, my first company, a company called Bang, we make composite components for F1 teams, people like Aston Martin, that sort of thing. I'm very, I was very aware that the components we were making were not, you know, of a, of, a, of, a, of a nature that was a good thing for the planet. You know, we were basically servicing the automotive world, which is not the best thing to do in this sort of day and age. I went for a few meetings in London and, and you know, didn't want to go on the tube, didn't want to drive, didn't want to do anything other than just get on a bike. And getting across London on a bike is actually a bit of a joy. It's great. There's loads of cycle lanes. No one, no one uses them. And I just sort of looked at all of these vans at the side of the road and thought, why the hell are we not, you know, bridging the gap between the bike and the van? And I just had a bit of that sort of light, light bulb moment. Went, okay, I'm, I'm just going to go make something. So at, at the same time, we we're also doing a project with DPD. And uh, I got to talk into some of their directors. And essentially, we said, look, if I was to develop something that you, that you like, would you, would you buy it? And the answer was yes. So that, that was it. We went, we went off, developed something, had three of the board of directors come and test it, and we made them. 
Marvellous. And tell me, what, what's DPD? So DPD is a, um, it's the largest UK logistics firm. They are owned by Lacoste in, in France, and they're all across Europe. So they're, they're a very, very big logistics company. Yep, excellent. But so DPD, did they deploy that on, originally on a trial or, or something like that just to test them out? Yes, yeah, so we did a 15-vehicle trial with them. It was uh, it went really well. They then distributed them across across Europe as well to their partners. And then from there, we've started working with you know uh, other other parcel logistics firms like uh, FedEx and Amazon. And you know we've then gone on to looking at different silos of industry like Veolia Waste and you know people like Ocado, for example. So it's not just logistics industry. Totally. Well, I think that was the the big part like that's happened since Amsterdam has been, obviously Amazon came out and, and uh, said they're going to be getting, they're setting up a micromobility hub in London and they happened to use your cargo bikes uh, as the picture for that announcement. I don't know how much further you can say about that, but uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I, I think it's so interesting. You know, there was a couple of companies like yourself who were in the, in the space of having four wheel electric kind of e-bike that were four-wheelers but cargo-based in Amsterdam that we've seen and I've just, you know, I've had pictures of people coming from Eurobike and it's just been this massive, like, influx. And, like, clearly everybody's kind of picked up that, hey, micromobility is going to be a big thing. Can you talk to me about, you know, when we're talking about these vehicles, like, I want to talk about the vehicle and then I want to talk about, the, like, the market and how that's and how that's evolving. So what have you seen in terms of, like, from the vehicle side? So you've gone, you started out with a four-wheeler, clearly. Why choose four wheels? How did that work? What's the regulation around that? What's the kind of advantage of that for logistics firms? Well, there's a reason why we all drive around in four-wheeled vehicles. And there's a reason why the Reliant Robin, a nice classic vehicle from the UK, is no longer on sale. (laughs) They're pretty dangerous, horrible things. Yes. Made famous by Mr. Bean. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, no, it wasn't. It was uh, only fills and horses. Mr. Bean had a mini. Oh, yeah, no, 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 sorry, sorry. It was, uh, yeah, I only remember it because when I was growing up watching Mr. Bean, they used to have the Reliant Robin and Mr. Bean used to always like cut it off and then the whole thing would tip over and everyone thought it was a joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, four wheels are better than three. It's a simple argument. I didn't want to make a vehicle that wasn't safe. Again, you know, young kids, I don't want my kids walking down the road and then, you know, maybe one of them steps into the road and you've got to avoid them you know in some form of swerve action you just can't do that safely with a three-wheel vehicle i don't care how safe you say it may be four wheels are better than three full stop there is an extra level of engineering behind four wheels of course but for me four wheels also gives you an extra brake so when it's wet and it's slippy and you've got you know these these vehicles carry quite huge loads comparative to their own weight you have to be able to stop that load safely and, um, you know, one of the things that I'm really keen to, to be an advocate for is, is legislation change that, that increases the safety of these vehicles, because there are very low barriers to entry. And you mentioned, you know, there are, there are plenty more uh, people coming into the cargo space with four wheels. And, you know, our, my answer to that is, you know, that they're great copies of what we started. But, you know, it's, 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 it's almost like a, it's a nice thing to see. I, I love competition. It's great. But at the same time, we should really keep an eye on safety and security going forward. So. Yeah, well, I was going to ask. So, so my understanding is that there, there's obviously a a, a regulation framework for these. It's because in Europe they're, they're considered to be quadricycles, right? So, like electric quadricycles. What's the? How does that? How does that work in the UK? Are they just considered to be e-bikes? So, um, the rules sort of change across across the world. In France, for example, they basically say that you're allowed uh, two wheels and three wheels. They don't mention or disclude four wheels, but they don't they don't say that it's legal. In the UK, four wheels is fine. 
in Europe, most of Europe at least, four wheels is also fine. It all comes down to the to the e-bike rules where you've got to have 250 watts of continuous rated power. You've got to have, you know, uh, reflectors and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So it's it's exactly the same as getting an e-bike on the road. It, it's as simple as that. Wow. We go one step further. We've got brake lights, indicators. We, we basically built a vehicle and engineered it down from a van to e-bike legislation. That's amazing. So you only have 250 watts of continuous output. Yeah. That's, how does that work if you're carrying, you know, like a ton of cargo? So you're allowed, you're allowed to peak your, your torque. And there's a, very, there's a very big difference between power and, 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 you know, your actual torque at the wheels. So, you know, that we're not looking for acceleration. We're not looking for, you know, sort of sports car handling or anything. We're looking for load carrying capability. So it's a, it's a different set of characteristics for your motor to be able to handle. Yeah. And talk me through the vehicles that you have built. So like, what are the, what are they rated to in terms of how much they can carry safely and that sort of thing? So again, one of the things that distinguishes us between most people is that we, we actually rate all of ours just like you would a vehicle. Yes, we've tested ours at well over a quarter of a ton of load, but we actually rate it to 150 kilos of load because we know that our, our wheels and our tires are, are safely rated to that. If you, if you overload them, you start breaking components. And we're now in that sort of development phase now where we've got separate uh, iterations of wheels and, and chassis, et cetera, that will take more load. But only once we've tested them will we then say that they're safe to do so. Right. So if you're doing 150 kgs of load, that how, how big is that in terms of volume? Like are we, you know, what are, what are these particularly well suited for? So the, the sweet spot is logistics. You know, you, you get about on average between 120 and 150 you know, small, medium-sized parcels in, in this two-meter cubed box that we've got in the back. I think that the, the easiest way to describe it is when you see a delivery van turn up at your door and they open the, they open the back and it's just, you know, a, a sea of parcels in the floor, ours are all sort of organized into shelving. And actually, volumetrically, it's far more efficient because of that organizational structure you've got inside the box as well. So um, on, on, on average, with a very large psychologistics firm in London, they're doing two shifts and they're doing about 350 deliveries a day on our vehicle, on one vehicle, which is an insane amount. You'd never get anywhere near that in a van. Right, right. Okay, yeah, because I don't, I don't have a, a frame of reference for this. So, yeah, what are, you, what are we looking at in terms – so I assume that that's just winning simply on the basis of being like far more productive from a, from a vehicle perspective. Is that because of things like access to parking, things like that? But it, it, it's also because it's small, because it's compact, because it, it, you know you can sort of stop straight outside of where you're delivering. You don't have to sort of drive down the road, park up, get out, walk down, come to the door, do your delivery, go back to. It's all about that 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 cost per drop is is what everyone measures their metrics in. So you know there's a reason why ours doesn't have doors. We could have put doors on it, but a door will take you know ten fifteen seconds to open and close. If you're doing that 120 times a day. People take note of that sort of saving. So, you know, there's, there's, there's significant savings by going down to cycle lanes, through pedestrian zones. You can also also operate this on the road. You know, it's, it's the, the, one of the best characteristics of our vehicle is because of the way it looks, because of the way it handles. You can, you can equally go on the cycle lanes. You don't annoy cyclists. You can go on the roads. You don't annoy motorists because you're looking signal maneuvering with your brake lights, etc. And you can go through pedestrian zones at a safe speed, slowly. And no one really seems to care at all. It's it's a it's a it's, a, it's sort of a a fluky design feature that we ended up um, creating. Yeah, well, I, I like to always consider. I, I use the term regulatory arbitrage for a lot of the micromobility designs that I see, which is that it's 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 taking you know like what's the 
what's the kind of core idea of the thing that you're trying to replace and you're working on how to do that at like a, an order of magnitude cheaper cost and, 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 and other things. And without having, like, as you say, you don't have to have these things certified or homologated as motor vehicles. So take me through, so the, the vehicles that you've got, you know, that you're obviously selling, like, can you talk me through any of the, the data about the company and how well it's done and uh, vehicles you've got on the road at the moment, what your sales forecasts look like at this stage? Yeah, so I mean, it, it fluctuates wildly all the time, as, you, as you'd understand. I think we've got just over 200 vehicles now built. We've been, you know, it's, it's difficult to be in production full stop at the moment from a point of view of part supply and We've gone from maybe the start of lockdown, and don't forget we've basically grown this business in lockdown, which has been another added sort of you know headache. We've gone from maybe producing about sixty percent of the components in house to now maybe producing about eighty five percent because we couldn't we couldn't maintain the quality of the supply and the quality of the components. So that's why we haven't been able to ramp up as quickly as we wanted to. We do have a, a, a very very good partnership with a, with a huge automotive OEM who are helping us structure our production facility to be able to ramp up to about 100, 150 units a month, end of this year, start of next year, which is all on track. At the moment, we've probably got between 2.4 and 2.8 million pounds of orders in the bank, which is, you know, we'd like to be a little bit ahead of there. But at the same time, I think given our lead times, I think that's a pretty good place to be. Into next year, we see ourselves being able to produce about uh, 1,800 units here in the UK, but part of our business model basically is to produce a flat packable vehicle. And we've got a concept called Eve Labs, and we've got um, facilities being set up in Europe at the moment where we will, we will distribute a, an 80% built vehicle over into Europe to start with at least, and then do the final assembly in that country of origin of sale. Because the shipping and the sort of the sustainability process of building a big box of air in the UK and then trying to ship it everywhere is is not a very good thing to do. So again, I don't want to build a hypocritical automotive manufacturer. I want to I want to basically you know design into the vehicle now the way in which we can sell into into the future. Excellent. And so, as you kind of mentioned in the beginning, you'd started out doing composites. I'm assuming the vehicles themselves are actually still made of the relatively high level of composites, but given that you're manufacturing 85% of it. So can you just talk me through like the actual vehicle dynamic, you know, the parts and, and how that kind of works as well? Again, it goes it goes back to not wanting to be a hypocritical vehicle manufacturer. You know, we, we, we wanted to use sustainable materials and recyclable materials. So you know, we use very simple steels and alloys, in, you know, throughout the vehicle. The bodywork is currently made from a, uh, a flax composite with a bioresin. So that sounds a bit sort of geeky, but um, essentially the, the byproduct from making flax seed that you'd have on your cereal is the stalk. And the stalk is a very fibrous and very strong material that you can weave into a, into a mesh and then use it to make bodywork with. We've been using it for probably about seven years now. So I know, I know it really well. I'm very passionate about that What's the what's the word? The, the journey from the source of the material to it actually being made into a thing. And there's nothing stopping me using the field next to our, our facility, growing my own material and then making a bodyworks out of it, which for me is so compelling. You know, my I know that my footprint of my bodywork set is less than 100 miles, which is pretty, pretty cool way of thinking about it. That, that's really cool. The vehicles that you're you're building, I mean, they're they're all currently one model, or do you have multiple models? So we've got multiple models in development. On the cargo bike side of things, we've got we've got a, a very much a platform that we can drop different bodies on top of. So we've got a taxi version coming out called the Eve Go that will seat two people in the back. Uh, it's also got a fold-in seat so that you can then put a wheelchair in the back as well. 
I think there's a huge market there, and, and you know, I think that the dis disabled access vehicles are few and far between. So I think we need to uh, we're focusing on that going into next year. We've also got the Eve Me, which is a small personal version, it may also be a shared mobility vehicle. Again, it will use exactly the same commercially graded, developed chassis that we've already got, and plonk a, a nice sort of product esque body on top of it. That's going to be coming out for pre sales at the end of the year. And then on a larger scale, we've got a uh, we've got what we call our Links platform. Now, this for me is probably the biggest development we'll we'll do. Part of the last mile problem is it's it's usually over fifty percent of the total cost of deliveries in the last mile. And I think one of the things that gets overlooked a lot is because getting to the last mile is one of the hardest things to do. You know, these these DSPs and these logistics companies they're usually operating from you know underneath a car park or you know in the centre of London underground somewhere. So it's very difficult to get the parcels to the last mile. What the Lynx vehicle does, and there's multiple options on on the Lynx vehicle as it's a modular modular platform is we will take pre-consolidated goods from the outside of the city centre, bring it in on these little vehicles, and then distribute to our last mile vehicle that stays in that last mile area and is operationally efficient all the time because it's being distributed with pre-consolidated boxes ready to uh, swap out onto them. So that, that vehicle is a uh, is an L7 category vehicle, so it's a 4 metre by 2 metre platform. You have to have a driving licence, but um, it's capped at 30 miles an hour and it will take about a tonne of load. So in theory, you would organize all of where all the packages are going to go in for a specific area in London, for example, and you would drive in with like three pallets, and then the pallets would just get switched out onto one of these vehicles, and so you'd never actually even need to go into like another distribution center inside the center of the city. You would just go straight from there. Is that the idea? That's the idea. So they actually carry five, what we call Roro pods, and that's a Euro pallet-sized cube. And you can get about 150 kilos of load in them, about 100 parcels. They probably do a morning and an afternoon shift. So you'd end up doing a, a swap out using the same process again in the afternoon. So we've got a lot of interest in this and some big, pretty big partners to announce over the coming months on our pilot program for that going next year. Yeah, because I can just, I mean, I can see that like urban logistics is just like this whole broken f system, right? It's like we've had the e-commerce kind of explode and then all of our uh, traditional systems are no longer working. So anything we can kind of develop. Yeah. And, and I also, you know, one, the one part that I love about this, by the way, is just that it, it is like quintessential following our micromobility framework of like what we think would happen, which is that you have these vehicles that you start out building like effectively a bike which doesn't have any of the stuff that an automotive sector would have to go and deal with. You build a really kind of semi-complicated, you know, a, a, like a complex bike that's very, like it's very utilitarian, but does the job. And then you go, oh, cool. Well, we can kind of build another stage of this, which would be we would use those small vehicles, but we can augment them even more so if we went and did this other thing because we don't need to go and do this old system like we used to when you used to have to have vans and other systems. It just is like, it, it blows my mind. It's awesome. The, the, the main the main issue that fleet operators have, and and you know it's ones that they don't they don't necessarily they don't have to change away from there at the moment, but soon there won't be an option other than to change away. At the moment, if you want to swap out your diesel fleet for electric, first and foremost, it's difficult to to do that. Full stop for all of the infrastructure and cost implications that you get. It's very difficult to match a TCO total cost of ownership of a diesel vehicle and an electric vehicle. The biggest issue is that just electrifying a diesel vehicle doesn't solve anything you know you just end up in the same silent traffic jam the thing that has to happen is that you end up with a you know the whole reason why this business was set up 
other than you know the obvious reasons, is because through design, we're enabling a change away from legacy operation. That's the major issue, the legacy operation bit. Now, there's been some pioneers out there for years. People like Zedify, for example, have been using cargo bikes to deliver goods in you know major cities across Europe, uh, UK. You know, they 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 saw it. They saw what needed to happen, and they went away and did it. I think the the, the bigger operators have a have a much bigger ship to to turn, and the easier that you can make this operationally, the better, or the easier it will be for them to adopt. So, you know, designing a pathway. Away from that legacy operation is our is our key focus here. Yeah, I can uh, I can totally see it. And the, the, okay, so we, the one thing that I haven't actually talked about is the co- total cost of ownership aspect to it, right? So, like how how much do these vehicles cost, and then how would you how do they kind of stack up in comparison to existing options that are in the market today uh, for for like a van or compared to other cargo bikes equivalent, you know? So we, we would normally we would normally compare it to a light electric van, you know, and, and um, I'm not, not going to name any names of light electric vans, but even if you have an electrified version of a light electric van, you're looking at about a third of the cost overall from a TCO point of view. The the the, the biggest driver here is that cost per drop again, you know, being able to operate in the city centre, maximising your average speed, you know, you can you can pretty much guarantee your average speed on a bike. You can't guarantee your average speed in a, in a van. You might hit 25 miles an hour at some point, but you're pretty much averaging, you know, five to seven miles an hour. On a, on a cargo bike, you probably average about seven to seven to 10. I mean, our, our, our cost of our vehicle isn't, isn't cheap. You know, they, they start at about 12 and a half thousand pounds. Our goal is to get that to a sub 10,000 pounds at the end of next year, which is what we're on track for. But ultimately, I just want to run a subscription model. I don't want to be selling vehicles. We want to be offering a vehicle as a service. So we have what we call Eve as a service, and that will be a fully functioning vehicle or fleet of vehicles with insurance, with customer service and maintenance, et cetera, all baked into the into a one monthly cost. All the fleet manager wants to do is basically take that monthly cost, divide it by how many parcels they've delivered, and there's your total cost. That's, that's you know, as simple as it gets. Yeah, yeah. And so talk me through like who are the customers in this? Because one of the things that we were talking about like prior to starting this is I was like, oh, Amazon must be buying all of them, but Amazon isn't actually in the business of doing last mile delivery. So who are the who are the the, the companies that actually do this? And like what's the market structure for them? Is it are we talking lots of mom and pop operators or are they almost all large logistics firms uh, or is it kind of a mix? No, it's, it's, it's a really, really great mix. I mean, I can, I can take you everywhere from, you know, a, a plumbing company in Bristol who are, who are operating a load of these vehicles, just doing, you know, going and doing the, 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 the you know, the plumbing and servicing of, of properties, et cetera, in and around there, right the way through to, you know, massive global, well, at least they are global company, Veolium Waste Management, who are using these throughout Westminster, West End, Hackney, to empty bins with, to distribute, you know, refuse, collection services etc you know that there's there's such a huge scope for this vehicle to basically replace a van so anything that you think you would use a van for this vehicle can replace it and in terms of the first to go back to the, like the market structure so who in terms of like who's making those decisions what are, what do you find i guess the question that i have in there is what is the sales process like are we talking you know is there like a long sales process to be able to sell into these companies or are they able to kind of say yeah no like i can I can pick this up. I'm, you know, it's a, I'm a relatively small firm. I can make a decision about like, like this. Or are you dealing with like companies that are, you know, you've got a long sales cycle of a year or something like that? 
So typically the, the sales cycle is between three and three and six months. And what we'd normally start off with is we've got about a 20, 20 odd vehicle fleet of trial vehicles and you'll, you'll offer a two week trial and, you know, nine times out of 10, they'll then go on and buy maybe a, a few one, two vehicles. And from there it goes on to 10, 50, 100, et cetera. So, you know, the, the, the try me, buy me approach is definitely the, the main focus there. And, and for me, it works. You wouldn't, you wouldn't go and buy a car unless you'd gone for a test drive. I don't think you would at least anyway. But the the mum and pop shops are potentially the easier sell, but in a, in, a, in a sort of long run, we want to partner with, you know, the larger blue chips of the world who, who can, you know, easily write a check for a thousand of these units. That's essentially, we want to be able to drive the cost of our vehicle down and the sort of the operational efficiency of it up and then make it an absolute no-brainer decision for, you know, uh, an Amazon to say, yes, we're going to, de- you know, deploy 10,000 of these next year. You know that's 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 the goal. Yeah, you obviously have to, like started in London and uh, or or in like British cities, which uh, as far as I can tell, don't have any. You know, it's not super common. You have like the ring roads, uh, like the N twenty five and stuff in London. You know, but like a lot of the cities do have relatively functional, like sub thirty mile an hour or sub fifty kilometer an hour kind of speed zones. How does this work when you've got the interfacing of like? Because I I'm just thinking about like American cities, for example or Australia and New Zealand cities where you do sometimes have to be able to go into motorways where it's hundred kilometers an hour or 60 miles an hour or, or other things, or is this just a, you know, has this not been a material driver for any of the decision-making for folks that you've talked to? None, none of our vehicles are even remotely considered to be designed or useful anywhere other than the center of a city, an urban area. And, you know, we're not interested in doing anything in intra-city. There are loads of other companies out there doing a great job of that. You know, using a truck, using a van to go from you know towns and villages, etc. We're we're not we're not that company. We are slap bang focused on that uh, inner inner urban mobility. Yep, absolutely fascinating. So, look, I I guess that the part that I I can kind of see is that like as we're talking all about like about all this, we're talking about you and your company and and, and what you're doing. But I think it's kind of obviously part of this wider story, right, of the acceleration of micromobility. And I, I'd love for you to just take me through the data points or the proof points that you're seeing that like this thing is, you know, we are like on, we are riding this giant wave that is about to like really, really take off. I think, I think if you go back to the start, I think most people just looked at it and went, well, that's a really nice gimmick. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a great thing to do some sort of green washing with, and we can stick our logo on it and we can look really green. I don't think anyone at the start was really taking us that seriously from the point of view of actually this was a viable business option. And I think now COVID has been, a, you know, it's obviously been horrible, but it's been a great accelerator for change. People are accepting of change and accepting of maybe changing their opinion on, on how things can work. As soon as you show someone how this can work operationally, it totally changes their opinion on, on what they can actually achieve, you know, in a day. And I think that's sort of, that's true for all of micromobility, whether you're buying an e-bike, whether you're using a scooter, whether you're, you know, just, just going into a city for a day out. You know, I, I recently went to New York and, you know, I just I jumped on a on an e-bike and I did 45 miles. I just I just rode around the whole of Manhattan. It was it was great. You know, maybe three years ago, you would never have done that. You'd have got on the tube. You'd have got on the bus. You'd have taken a bus stop tour. I swear I saw more of the city by getting on a bike than I had if I'd have got on a bus. So, you know, I think it's just that it's just that mentality change. And I, and I love where it's going because I think there is there is so much there's so much more that we could design let alone what the rest of the world can design to make micromobility a far more accessible and 
you know, brighter future for the way in which we move around, not just cities, but, you know, I, I don't want to ride, drive around in a car. I haven't owned a car since lockdown started. I bike everywhere. But, you know, it's an exciting time for me. Oh, absolutely. The the one so there's a couple of things I want to I want to come to just as you were talking about the like it, you know it was a gimmick in the beginning. One of the big things that I think a lot of and you, and you mentioned it earlier when you were talking about the full you know that you've got a, these light electric vans and the, the challenge with them is that like it's charging, it's the infrastructure, it's the wider stuff. It's not just you know like and they're not that they're not one for one on diesel in terms of like purchase and and use. How do you do things like battery uh, power swaps, all that sort of thing? So it's it's a uh, removable battery. It's 15 kilos, so it's very manageable in terms of its weight, but it will do uh, 45 miles a day. So usually one battery charge is, is enough for a day's worth of use. And, you know, essentially the, the infrastructure requirement to charge one of our batteries is your standard three-pin plug in the wall. Even if you've got a bank of batteries, you could probably have uh, between 30 and 40 of our, our vehicles from an energy point of view, charging-wise, versus one van. So, you know, that... The, the cost of putting the infrastructure into a, a middle of the city facility is you know, very, very little. Whereas if you look, I know of a few very large logistics firms who have spent tens of millions of pounds putting in infrastructure in the center of cities, and they've maybe got seven or eight electric vehicles. Don't get me wrong, I still believe that electric vehicles have their place. I just don't believe it's the answer. Yes, totally. I, I 100% agree with you. And the, the, the charging one is, I think, one that's going to be incredibly compelling to 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 that story right it's like oh yeah there's no infrastructure costs to your switch you don't have to do any retrofit but it all comes down to weight everything is about weight if you've got a heavy vehicle you need more battery if you've got more battery the vehicle's heavier <laughs> you know and if you've got a light vehicle and it's you know it doesn't need as much battery you're not using as much energy so you know the the, the argument's really simple do less with more yeah Take me through the the the, uh, the story of infrastructure as well. So you mentioned obviously that they're like these things can go on uh, bike paths. How how much of that is the story of for being able to actually have these navigate a city quicker? Is it is it all to do with that infrastructure? It, it is very important. Yeah, you your your pathway through a city centre is is very difficult in a car. It doesn't matter which city you're going in in Europe now. I mean, even in New York, when I last week, you know, most of Broadway, every three streets of Broadway is a pedestrian zone now. So on a bike, you can go straight through, but if you're going to do that in a car, it's not possible. So you know, it doesn't matter where you are. Cities are urbanising. Right. They're shutting roads. They're trying to get rid of cars because they've got pretty stringent you know air pollution targets to meet and if they don't meet them what was the point in having the targets in the first place they need solutions like ours to you know replace vans quickly in order to meet those targets so yeah and do you think that there's i mean one of the questions that i've always had is like how do we convince city officials about how to build infrastructure faster? Because at the end of the day, it's not even fancy. It just is literally like road space reallocation of, you know, parking. But that is a very challenging thing. And until now, like what we've seen is you go and make the argument. It's like, oh, well, a bunch of commuting e-bikers or bikers might use this versus where I can see it being incredibly compelling is the story of like, hey, you've got Amazon coming in and saying, look, we we need you to build a whole network of, of bike lanes across the city because we will solve half of your logistics problems with doing all this last month. We'll get a whole bunch of vans off the road for you if you do this. You know, I just think. That sounds like a whole heap of common sense, that does. 
Well, it does. Yes. And it's also the, you know, the, I, I, th- I think it's one of these ones that we're waiting for the companies in the industry to really come out and take a position of leadership there, which hasn't, I've seen, I haven't seen that happen yet. I think it all comes down to communication. You know, we have, we had the DFT here last week and the week before we met them in Amsterdam as well at your show. They're, they're writing policies. They're writing, you know, the, the sort of the legal pathway to, to get to that point. But no one's talking. And actually, I've, I've, I think we as a company have maybe introduced, you know, our customers to people in government to try and go, well, hey, you know, we operate in SE1 in London. If that road there was, you know, a, a bike, I just had a single bike lane, let alone, you know, uh, you know, just a normal one, we could probably cut out a huge amount of time and journey and maybe get rid of 20, 30 percent of the vehicles on the road, you know, that, I don't think people are going to change unless it is governed. And I think the governance of, of micromobility hasn't happened, not in, not in the UK at least. I think if you go to somewhere like Amsterdam, uh, anywhere in Holland really, they've got it right. Bits of Paris are, you know, since since COVID has happened, that's, that's a phenomenal place to sort of look at, you know, a blueprint point of view that's spread across Europe. I think... So there are there are elements and ingredients that people have done across Europe that if you just put them into a big petri dish and everyone just copied and pasted, it it could be adopted very quickly. Yes, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. So I want to kind of shift tack a little bit and just talk to you a little bit about the company side of things. So you obviously started out Eve off the back of BAMD, and yeah, like you you obviously had a company that was doing well already. You you doing the, the the composite business? Can you talk me through that part of the business and then like? The, the shift that it's taken for you and how you've thought about funding the company. Because I think, and I want to contextualize this as well, which is one of the challenges that I keep seeing in micromobility is that we have, it's a really low cost to innovate to build vehicles. Like you can build, you can kind of whack together a, a, a kind of prototype vehicle and it's not that expensive to do. But we've still struggled to see the funding side of hardware, like especially pre-revenue is like brutal and it's a it's a really challenging space to get funded at the moment even though you've got on the other side all the things that you and i are talking about right now which is like massive upside huge number of companies that are just waiting for a solution to be built that's like this you know how have you thought about that journey like did you have you look you're obviously looking to take on external funding at the moment versus trying to build this yourself what's the what's the decision making frame that you've you've kind of come to with this i think from a sort of level-headed business point of view, I was never a businessman. I had to become one. And, you know, I've learned the hard way on pretty much everything. So I've, I've, I've done all my failing in life. I've done the learning from a point of view of, you know, how to get to revenue, how to make a product, how to make profit. When this company was formed, it was effectively a little mini project in my, in my old company, which is still running. It's actually run by my original apprentice now. It, it operates itself. I rarely go over there. It's less than 300 yards away from me, but, you know, it's, 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 it's one of those things where the first focus I had was getting to revenue. That clear pathway to revenue is the only thing that's going to get you invested, in my opinion, at least anyway. If you can show realism, real product, real company, real customers, real future, someone will believe in you, someone will invest in you. So for me, getting to revenue within the first six months of starting the business was the goal, and that's what we did. We built 15 vehicles. It wasn't a huge amount of revenue, but it... We, it got us. It got us started, basically. And now that that was, you know, three of us in a shed, uh, putting in pretty much eighteen, twenty hours a day for no pay. <laughs> so you know, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not the greatest opportunity in the world. But um, that's what you got to do. You got to, you got to 
put your arse on the line and get on with it. So yes, but since then, you know, that fundamental grounding and that sort of, I call it motorsport mentality. You've got a deadline, you're going to meet it and you're going to work until it's done. That mentality going forward means that now we're in that, we're in a, we're in a position where we've got again, real business, real revenue, real profits. All right. Heavily on the R and D side, we're developing future iterations and, you know, continuing to improve, et cetera. But that's very investable. You've got the sort of the speculative investment alongside realism. And I don't think you can get a better match going forward. We're not stagnant. Yes, totally. I think there's a there's been a challenge uh, with some, maybe some of the companies that I've seen in micromobility where they've got company, they've, they've, they've built this insane, you know, like a really beautiful product and it hasn't quite got there in terms of traction or the, the, there was maybe a thought that they'd, they'd get there in terms of traction and it's hard to prove it. And on the other hand, they've got companies that are really like, the, the classic story of this is actually Rad Power Bikes, who are one of the largest e-bike manufacturers in, in, uh, in the US. Started out with Mike, like Radenbar in 2007, just doing like, he just loved e-bikes and just started doing conversions. Uh, and it just like, he, he was like, oh, I got kind of good at it. And then, you know, it's like the story that comes after that is like, oh, and then we should probably maybe build our own one because we've kind of got a lot of people asking and we don't want to give them these crappy ones. So then they, and then that's just turned into they're now the largest US brand of uh, e-bikes. And it's, it's possible to build businesses like that. I think it's, it's one of these things that in the beginning, I think micromobility really aligned itself very heavily with venture capital, which works sometimes, but hardware is hard. And I don't know if there's necessarily always a super great match because there's, you know, you're, you're deep in operations, as you, as you know, of, of building these vehicles. A lot of it is logistical stuff. It's not quite like software. There's a really heavy technical debt that comes with uh, building vehicles if you have to build faster than you need to you know, they might be intelligent, but you've got the money there to do it. So you just kind of do stuff that, that wouldn't stack up otherwise. Yeah, look, this is this is so fascinating. Uh, I just, I, you know, uh, it's such a different area of micromobility to the, to the stuff that we've traditionally covered. If you were to say, you know, like going forward from here, okay, so you've got the, you've got the existing vehicles, you're, you're obviously going to scale those in terms of production. You've got the L7 vehicles, which will allow you to do like a whole new hub. Is there a business model innovation that comes with that for you around the, the you know, like you're running those as still leasing services or are you like do you think that you would ever start going to like hey we want to work out ways that we can set up our own logistics hubs or become a kind of roving logistic hub and and like get into that side of the business too i mean is there opportunities there for you There's, there's definitely opportunities for sure i think coming back to the business question stay focused on what you're good at we're good at developing stuff and making things. I, I, I understand the operational model and I understand the, the challenges that the operators have, but let's, let's support them in doing their job. I think that's the, the easiest way of saying that and focus on making their lives easier. And I think that ability to understand where your limitations are is obviously massively important. And yes, there's opportunities, but no, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be considering them. Yeah, I hear you. Cool. Well, um, the the final question that I have for you just before we wrap up is, you know, we have a lot of people who listen to these episodes. A lot of them are entrepreneurs, but we also have a bunch of people who are government. And I think one of these areas that we haven't traditionally, like this is the first time I've really talked to anybody who's doing like deep cargo stuff. So talk me through what that conversation you're having with the DFT, what can governments be doing to better enable this space? Well, I mean, just if you just focus on the UK alone, there's two billion pounds worth of, of pledged money for cycling and walking infrastructure. Yet I've seen no call for evidence or like projects or anything to sort of try and understand where that money should be spent. 
So I would be saying to any any government official now, you know, let's let's communicate, let's put suppliers and not just us, other cargo bike manufacturers, other micro mobility manufacturers with their customers, you know, the FedExes of the world, et cetera, et cetera. Put them all in a room and let's have a discussion. Nothing's going to get done quickly unless we talk. So for me, it's just about that common sense approach, like you say, and discussing what people need and then spending the money wisely rather than wasting it on, you know, consultants that are going to be pretty expensive. I'll, I'll do this for free. You know, let, let me let me let me help you for free. That sort of thing. I won't charge a penny. Let's let's try and make the world a better place. Yeah. I hear you. I get that in terms of like infrastructure, info, like where the money should be spent on infrastructure. Is there anything in terms of like regulation or? Updating the regulations is, is really important. I think they are very old and antiquated now. And I think the, again, that's what the DFT are currently doing. They're, they're creating new, you know, micromobility legislation. I think the emphasis there needs to be on safety, though, because the, the, the sort of the governance of, of scooters, for example, in the UK hasn't been handled very well. You know, everyone, everyone's got a, a, their own scooter, but they're illegal. So, you know, it's not about trying to, like, victimize people that are just trying to get about and do a good thing and using them. But let's make sure they've got a helmet on. And let's make sure there's a nice place for them to ride them. You know, it's it's again it's pretty simple isn't it let's just make sure that the safety of these products is is paramount because otherwise if someone gets hurt or when they get hurt because they will it's not detrimental to everyone and this sort of movement doesn't end up being stifled in any way yeah fascinating cool well hey adam thank you uh, i really appreciate your time and uh, it's been great to have you on and i'm and i'm looking forward to uh, yeah watching your story with great interest this is a space i'm looking forward to exploring more and uh, learning more about so thank you for for starting me on this journey yeah if folks want to track more about you or or, or the company can you take me through uh, or just yeah where can they find more information about you Yep, so um, go on eav.solutions, that's the domain. And yeah, that you can get information across LinkedIn, across all the social channels. And yeah, thanks very much, Oliver. Really, really appreciate the opportunity to come on the podcast. Not at all. Appreciate it. Cool.